God does assert that in the text of Scripture and the people that were part of the narrative of Scripture, he has those that are living proof, those that are, the, the, those that are sent to verify the truth and to confirm the truth. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've looked at a number of them that are clustered, have been clustered around Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. I want to look at a little cluster of them that goes back to his early days. And I want to begin with two people that you meet in the text as you go down to verse 22 and following of Luke chapter 2, of two people that met Jesus when he was presented in the temple. Now, we're going to approach this scripture, and I want you to think your way with me. I want you to kind of, let's all engage our minds rather than just listening to me. Let's just sort of see if we can break this apart and and delve into the scripture and see what is going on here. Uh, And one of the things that is sort of a picture for me of how to approach Bible study is when I was a a youngster, when I was a child, I occasionally got taken to the doctor's office. seemed like when I was real young, I had tonsillitis every year, and I go to the doctor and it was the same thing. They give you pills and all that. Now, if you have this again, we're going to take your tonsils out. Fortunately, I still have my tonsils, so I never got there. But it, was, it, was like I had, it seemed like I had that kind of you know, sickness every year. But the doctor's office had two things that I really liked. One was they had an aquarium in the waiting room, so I liked watching the fish. And number two, they had a highlights magazine. You, you remember those highlights for children? Uh, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think they would give them away to doctor's offices in hopes that mothers and, you know, people bringing their kids in, oh, he, you know, Junior really likes that magazine, and then they would get a subscription to it. It was kind of a marketing plan. My parents never picked up on that. I never got a subscription to Highlights. Don't get me one now, okay? But, but one of the things I enjoyed was they would have this little thing in here about, with, a, with a drawing, and it would have hidden pictures. Remember hidden pictures? You know, there would, there, there would be, maybe it'd be a, a Christmas scene and there would be a, you know, a, you know, something hidden in the wreath or there would, you know, be some little saying or word or whatever and, and you would find these things. Now, what was really bad, occasionally you would go to the doctor's office and you would grab the marketing highlights magazine and you would open up the hidden picture and someone, shame on them, had already taken a pen and marked all the hidden pictures. So, so you didn't... Have you ever had that experience? That was a real... That was a bad day when someone had marked them all. You was no, there was no joy in finding the hidden pictures. In some ways, when we come to the Scriptures, we are looking for the hidden pictures that are in the text. Now, be careful. This is not looking for something that isn't there. This is not just some mystical that, that you take something that means one thing and, and make it mean something completely different. But we look at what is in the text of Scripture and sometimes what has been left out of the narrative or the the text. And that's going to give us understanding about what is there. That's what we want to do tonight. We want to, maybe not hidden pictures might be too much, but we want to delve down into the words and the background and the culture and the patterns of life in those days under the law. And that's one of the things that we need above all when we're biblical students. Because even the New Testament comes out of a very Jewish, first century Jewish background. And that is built upon all of the history and all of the the documentation and all the law and the covenants and all the things from the Old Testament. So you have to, even though we mostly here are Gentiles, maybe all Gentiles, we all have to kind of get into this Jewish mindset and the culture of the day to understand that. So let's begin with our, I've showed you this verse every time just to remind you what we're looking at. Deuteronomy 19.15, God says that one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So his law of evidentiary of a standard is simply 
one witness was not sufficient. You need at least two and preferably three. And what I've uh, suggested to you as we've looked at these events, that God had so arranged these, whether it was the burial, the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection, the guards, those that we spent two weeks looking at those uh, multiple uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, that, that God had saw to it, saw to it that we would, would see and hear from these witnesses that these things are true. Okay, So we come to the text here, and it says in verse 22, Luke chapter 2, Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, that they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Well, there's some things there that we need to pick out. We will do this in just a moment, but I want to point them out to you now, and we'll discuss them later. What are the days of her purification? What is that picture embedded in there? What does that mean? And it says, uh, according to the law of Moses, and it brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. What does that mean? If you go back to verse 21, it says that when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given him, given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So we understand that this is separate from that event, that ceremony, that, that covenantal practice of the Jews. So what does that mean? Now he gives a little hint in verse 23. Because here he's quoting from the Old Testament in verse 23. He's actually quoting from Leviticus 12. We're going to go there in just a little bit. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of young turtle doves or two young pigeons. So that was the offering that was to be brought. Well, what's that all about? So we need to kind of break that apart. Then it says, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So there you have some questions that need to be answered. Uh, what does it mean to be just and devout? I think we have a pretty good idea, but that means something very particular to him. W- waiting for the consolation of Israel. Well, what does that mean? We've got to define that. The Holy Spirit was upon him. That seems pretty straightforward. We understand that. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the, Lord, in, the, in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed, blessed God and said, and then we'll look at what he says and what Anna says, who appears on the scene down in verse 36 in just a bit. So let's just see if we can get into this and see if we can break this apart. I've called this the waiting witnesses because it seems as if both of these cases, they have been waiting a period of time especially in Anna's case because it's annotated for us at least roughly how old she is. And uh, so we, we know she's been waiting a long time. And it seems implied in the text by one phrase that he makes that he's been waiting a long time. And uh, we're going to plug that in. So first of all, let's talk about what this means, this presentation and what is going on. And I would encourage you to mark your text where you are, where you are here in chapter 2 because we're coming back. And I would encourage you, if you would be so inclined, to go back to Leviticus chapter 12, which is the, the reference that Luke makes when he's given us just a hint of where we should go and how this works. So we're going to call this the law of new, the law of newborns, okay? This is, this is what was the procedure under the law, okay? It might seem strange to us, but this is what took place, okay? It says in chapter 12, Leviticus, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. If any woman has conceived and bore a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity, 
she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So the first thing is that all male children, all Jewish children, males, were circumcised on the eighth day. So seven days. And it talks about her impurity. And uh, she was considered, after going through the process of childbirth, to be ceremonially impure or unclean. It was the same for a woman who was of childbearing years that went through her monthly cycle, that during that period of time, she was also unclean. She was not allowed to come into the, to, to the worship and so forth, and there was a procedure that took place afterwards. Now, that may seem strange to us, and, and what is that all about? I don't know as I can answer all of your questions, but nonetheless, I want you to get the timing for the newborns. That's the part I want to look at today. So, it also says, if you go just a little bit further in this, in verse 3, or in verse 4, she shall continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall, not, she shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. So the place of worship in Jesus' day, it was the temple. She was not allowed to come there until another 33 days. So you take seven days, as it's already mentioned, eight-day circumcision takes place, and then 33 days later. So for a 40-day period... Uh, she had to wait to this time that her uncleanness was in play, and uh, then there was an offering for it. We'll see that in just a moment. Now, if you read further in the text, not take time to do it, but it, for, if you had a female child born, she was not unclean for 40 days. She was unclean for 80 days. And I know you're going to ask me or think, why is that? And I would love to be able to give you an answer, but I have to tell you, I really have no idea. Uh, I have, I've worked on it, I've looked, no one else seems to have any idea either. So uh, you can always fall back on this. God said it, that's the way it is, okay, that's the way it is. I, I don't know, I don't think it's that, that females are less of value or importance, but there's probably some symbolism there that maybe we'll figure it out somewhere along the line. But that, I, the, part is, is the part we want to get is this process because we have to see this process in play when, when, when Mary and Joseph come with Jesus and they have this encounter that we're looking at in, in chapter 2 of Luke. Then there was an offering made when she would come. And there's two parts to this. On the presentation day, okay? She's finished her 40 days for a male child. She can now come to the sanctuary. And this is what has to happen as this takes place. If we go down to verse 6, it says, When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then she shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Uh, Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has born a male or a female. Okay? So to end this time of impurity, uh, she has to offer a lamb of the first year or, excuse me, and a dove or a pigeon, okay, if we can say it that way. But now he makes a special allowance here, if you read on in this this text. Verse 8, Leviticus 12. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make an atonement for for her and she will be clean. So if you couldn't afford a lamb, if you were of modest means... God, in His grace, gave a much less costly offering that could be made to take care of this, okay? So, I think it's all on the screen now, except for one more thing. But let's just cover what we got, okay? Go, go back one, if you would, please. Okay? So, eighth day, male circumcised. 
mother was unclean for 33 days after that seven-day period, 80 days for female, seven days until circumcision, 30 days, 33 days of uncleanness, that equals 40. And then where we were a moment ago, this offering of purification, okay? Now, there's one more part to it, and uh, we want to look at this as we go forward, and that was this presentation of the firstborn. So a mother would, after her period of time had elapsed, those 40 days, bring the child, and there's an offering made, that is for her. And then there's a presentation of the child if it is the firstborn son. Okay, so that's what we want to look at next. So what takes place? That the the firstborn was presented after this purification takes place. That's number four on our list. Okay? Now we have some verses that that come from Numbers 18 uh, that, that speak to this. And there's also a reference for us in Exodus chapter uh, 13 as well. Let me just bring a couple of these verses up just so you save time reading them or find them in your Bible. Exodus 13.2 says this, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, who, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. So this was a reminder in the normal occasions of life that the firstborn, even of the cattle, it belonged to God. God was to receive this. Now if you look at Numbers uh, 18, uh, we find this. Everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shall surely, you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. So, in essence, this child was to be brought to the Lord, and a statement was made. And the way this worked in Jesus' day, you would find a priest, and in the outer courtyard, in one part of the courtyard where women were allowed, uh, that a priest would be there, there would be priests there, and you would hand the child over to the priest. In other words, you've given the child to God. But then you were allowed, and it was expected, that you would pay an offering of five shekels, which was probably around $10 in our money, something like that, not a large sum. But in essence, you would buy that child back from God. So it was a beautiful picture when you think about it. It seems kind of odd to us, but this child belongs to the Lord, and I give something of value to me to receive him back into my home and so forth. So, so you would hand the child over, you'd pay the money, and the child would, would, would come back to you that way. Verse 16 says this of Numbers 18. And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when one, when one month old, according to your valuation, for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. So there's the stipulation of how much. And notice it says you will redeem at one month old. So this is now 40 days after birth. That would mean that it hadn't reached the two-month mark. So the child is one month old. So that takes place. So we'll go back to our next slide. If you can bring up all the text that's there. So in, that, in Luke chapter 2, the firstborn was presented after the purification, the firstborn son presented to the Lord, and then redeemed from the Lord, okay? Now let's go back to Luke 2, and let's sort of overlay Luke 2, and we'll just leave that part of it up there on the screen for you for just a little bit. Let's get back to the narrative and, and walk our way through it. So, verse 21, Jesus is eight days old, seven, first seven days of her time of impurity is past, and the child is circumcised. That's when the name is given, and they were obedient to name him Jesus, which literally means God saves, Jehovah saves, however you want to say it, but God's salvation. He's named that because that was what the angel had told Mary his name would be even before he was conceived. And now, verse 22, Now in the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, this is now 40 days after birth, 
they brought him to Jerusalem. This was not a difficult journey for them because apparently they had stayed in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus. They hadn't gone back to Galilee where they were, where they were from. And uh, that being the case, it's only about seven miles, more or less, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. If you today stand on the outskirts of Jerusalem and you have a little bit of a high vantage point, you can look right down the valley and see the, the next little hillside. and You can easily see Bethlehem from that distance uh, where you were. So it was not a, not a far journey, so she comes, and they're doing what the law requires. It says, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's exactly the Leviticus 12 procedure that's in play. And he mentions that in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Notice what Luke indicates to us in the text. Mary and Joseph do not bring a lamb, apparently. They bring the lesser valued offering, which was still in accordance with the law. But that probably indicates to us that they did not have a great deal of means. They were probably not wealthy people. They were uh, trying to, like, like many, many people are today, just trying to, to get by. And they, they do that. But it's interesting that in the text, Luke goes to the trouble to tell us which way it goes in the offering. It's a detail that is there, maybe to tell us about poverty, but I think it's also to shed light on something else, okay? Now, verse 25, they have finished that offering. They now need to present Jesus to the Lord as the law required, as we saw in Numbers chapter 18 and Exodus chapter 13. Just so happens, and I'm assuming this on the text, it could, have been a, it could have been separate, but I assume that Simeon is a priest and he is the guy that God has appointed and brought there by the Holy Spirit to be the one that they hand the child over to. And you might think, if maybe I've always thought of this story, how strange, you're bringing the baby into the sanctuary and some strange guy comes up and grabs the child out of your arms. That, that'd be a little scary, wouldn't it? Well, if you put it in this context, this was normal. You would look for a priest who would take the child in in his arms, say a blessing over the child, receive the redemption money, and give the child back to the parents. I'm going to suggest to you at least a possibility that that Simeon had a, a, a different role than even the text says because there's something that is left out it's not stated in the text. It might, it might be stated just because it happened and Luke didn't record it. Or it might be left out of the text because it didn't happen. So stand by on that for just a moment. So it says in 25, And behold, there was a man of Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout. It's interesting that God saw to it that one of the witnesses to the law being fulfilled by Jesus' family was a devout man and a just man. He, he practiced what he preached. That's just, if you will. And he was devout. That meant he kept the law. So this would have been an excellent witness. If you want, this would be somebody that you couldn't impugn his character. You couldn't challenge the veracity of his testimony. He was not a person that could be proven to be a liar or deceitful or any of that. This was, this was the best kind of witness you could get. And it says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So God in the person of the Spirit was, was arranging all of this to take place. The consolation of Israel. The comfort and, and the, 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 the taking away of sorrows for Israel. That's what he was longing for. That was a way of saying he was looking for the Messiah to come. 
Because the Jewish expectation, and rightfully so was, things were only going to be good for Israel when God sent his chosen one, when the Messiah would come. Now, we understand that Jesus came in that role. We also understand that much of what the Messiah will accomplish for Israel yet waits prophetically in the future. You understand that. But he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for the Messiah. He was somebody who was actively expecting. In their day, as it is in our day, even among quote-unquote religious people, there were some people who believed, yeah, the Messiah is going to come. And there were people who said, that's a fantasy and a fairy tale. Don't put, your, don't put your stock in that. Don't put your hope in that, okay? Yeah, we need to be religious and do these things, but, but to be looking for that kind of, that's, we need to be more practical than that. And then there were some who were the devout, the just people, that they had not given up the hope that God would send the anointed one, his, his Christ. So that's who, who Jesus is handed over to. It says in verse 26, the spirit that was on him had revealed this. And it had been revealed to him that by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. I wish we had some little story that told us about how that came about, wouldn't you? Can you imagine what Simeon would have felt and what, what joy he would have had? I, I'm going to get to see the, 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 the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the, the, the one who God is going to send to bring consolation and remove our sorrow and bring joy back to Israel. He knew he was going to have that, and this was the day. It was a fleeting moment that he was in the presence of Christ. It was just one encounter so far as we know, but God directed at a particular day, at a particular place, with a particular couple, with a particular child, that God had him supernaturally directed to be right there at the right time. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the, the, the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. So here he comes to, to do that. So he is fulfilling everything that takes place in that. Now I want to leave what he says until just a moment. I want you to skip down to verse 36 and just bring the other person into play. And then we'll look at what, uh, what transpires after for her. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess. This means a female who was, who was fulfilling the prophetic role. The daughter of Phineul of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And now this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Again, can we say it this way? Another high caliber witness that God brings into play. And to, to fulfill this, this, this role. And coming in at that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him, excuse me, spoke of him to all those who look for the redemption in Jerusalem. Again, she was a believer that the Messiah was going to come. And, and apparently, as best I can envision it, she overhears the blessing that Simeon is giving over Jesus, which is in verses 29 down through 35. That, that she hears that and she recognizes that this is the one who's going to redeem Israel. This is the, the salvation bringer. This is the, the righteousness giver. And she fulfills that role. So what is their, what is their role, okay, and what's, what's this all about? Partly it is to say this, and this is sort of a summary statement. It is to prove that Jesus in every way was uniquely qualified to be our Savior, if anyone, and you, and we have a hard time understanding this, okay? We, we, we live in a day where, you know, 
our parents may have done done well or not done so well, but we're responsible for our own actions, you know, that sort of thing. But in their day, if if parents had messed up, that reflected on you. There was this tighter connection. You remember the man who was bo- who was born blind? Remember that whole thing? And there's this whole discussion. And the whole discussion started with, did this man sin or did his parents? Because it might have been his parents were sinners, and the reason he's blind is because they were sinners. And you remember that whole thing that unfolds, and, and it, it, if it wasn't so sad, it would be humorous. So it, it was very important in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish mindset, to know that the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, fulfilled every point of the law that God had given. So no one would ever question. So Luke goes to great detail, and apparently Luke the physician from what we can gather, uh, had some interaction with Mary who was still living after the death of Christ. And uh, we don't know how long she lived after that, but uh, Jesus dying at age 30, having him when she was a young lady, could have lived a number of years afterwards. And uh, apparently he got this detail, which the most intimate detail of these, this part of Jesus' life is included in Luke's gospel. So that's probably where this information came from. But so that everyone will know, Jesus is qualified. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the unique one. And by the way, that should just remind us, maybe this crowd doesn't need reminded, but it's worth saying. You can put every confidence in the fact that Jesus is the unique, one and only, but is the real Savior of the world. There's no question. There's just, in every case, and God goes to great detail to that. So, Simon and Andy, what was their roles? Let's summarize this way. It was to confirm that the purification took place. Mary came, two turtle doves, two pigeons, did what they should have done, did it on the right day. Everything was just the way it should be. So that check that one off the book, which is important. And to confirm the, the, the presentation, okay? It confirmed that this did take place. They came on the right day in the right way, handed them over to a priest and so forth. But there's something missing. And I don't have a final answer for this. I'm just gonna, I'll just leave this one hanging for you, okay? But he says specifically in the text that they brought the two doves and the two pigeons. And that was the lesser, the least expensive of the two options they had to make an offering for your purification. They come to present Jesus. Simeon takes Jesus, says this blessing over him, but there's nowhere in the text does it say specifically that they gave five shekels to redeem him back from God. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. I can't prove it either way. But let's just think about it either way and just let it hang there. And we've got to be okay that there's some things we don't know. If they paid it, that's just what normally would happen. That would be sort of like check the box. But perhaps, perhaps they didn't have five shekels. Perhaps that was a hardship on them. And perhaps God sent the right guy, the right priest at the right moment to take Jesus in his arms and to get a blessing without requiring said redemption and money. If that is the case, it's just a small indicator that Jesus belonged to God from conception to birth, through the circumcision, through the presentation, and he was never bought back by his family. He belonged to God uniquely from that point on and always. I tend to, I tend to suspect that's probably what happened, but I can't prove it, so I'm not going to say stomp my foot and say definitively that's what happened. But it's, it's interesting that Luke goes to the detail of what price was paid for the purification. He leaves that out when it comes to the five shekels for the presentation. So I, I don't know. Just leave it there. So there's a question of the redemption. 
And also down in verse 32, remember what it said about, about Anna, those who look for the redemption in, in Jerusalem. So that redemption quality, that redemption concept is definitely in play in this scenario. Okay, So let's move on. Let's think about their message. And this is going to lead us to a very simple and I hope very profound lesson that we can take with us tonight, all right? Their message, okay? Let's go back to verse 29. Let's listen in as Simeon speaks a blessing over Jesus. It says in verse 28, let me back up one verse. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. So he's speaking, first of all, to to, to God. And then he speaks to, to Mary and Joseph. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. For everybody else that day, except these two, Jesus was just another nondescript baby coming in to do what you did with babies all the time. This was just standard issue. This was just regular. This was nothing extraordinary, except God saw to it that two people, the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established, that would speak the words to say, this child. This one is the Messiah from this point for sure, and he has been that way from eternity past, in essence. So, I have seen the Lord's salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people. All peoples. Now, it's interesting. From a Jewish perspective, this was sort of mind-boggling. I don't think this kind of a statement was made by too many priests that are, that are presenting babies and doing this ritual that was common in their day. Because he says, this is a blessing not just to Israel, not just to the Jews. This is going to be a blessing to all peoples. And look what he says in the next verse. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Both Jew and Gentile are going to be blessed by this child. And for those of us who are Gentiles, we should say, thank you, God. Thank you for the expansiveness of your offer of salvation. So he speaks in this case. Uh, it's spoken to the Lord and to Mary and Joseph, who's also there. Okay, Now, if you go down to the text in Anna's case, it says, the only thing it says in verse 38 is this, And coming in at that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. So she's praising God, obviously. And spoke of Him to all those who look for redemption in Jerusalem. Simeon talks to Mary and Joseph, says something to God. She offers praise to God, but she goes out and tells everybody else. So her role is to speak to the believers in Israel, those who were looking for the redemption, those who had that messianic expectation. Simeon spoke of blessing to Jews and Gentiles, and then he also speaks of division and sorrow. Look in verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. They thought they were just going to get out, get in, get out, you know, just be ordinary. And, uh, and but here this magnificent thing is said. And, and this is also designed to be an encouragement of their faith and in all the things that take place. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother. Notice he says to Mary, not to Joseph. Because he's speaking about the sorrow that's going to take place when Jesus dies. After Jesus becomes an adult and starts his ministry around the age of 30 in the narrative of Scripture, Joseph is never mentioned. In fact, when Jesus is about to be crucified, he tells John, behold your mother. You're going to take responsibility for taking care of this woman, who apparently at this point is a widow. So it's even in advance knowing that that's taking place. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, 
and for a sign which shall be spoken against. So he's spoken a blessing to Jews and Gentiles. He's speaking of division and then in sorrow because he says in verse 35, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So when he talks about a fall and rising of many, it all comes down to many people are going to stumble over who Jesus is and reject. And there's going to be many who, who rise again who are going to be those who are believers. So this one that he's talking about, that he's, that he's speaking about yet future, he says to them, he, he is the dividing line. He is, he is, he is the point. He's the, the absolute determiner. And what we do with him determines our eternal destiny. And then he speaks to Mary, a sword shall pierce through your own soul also. You're going to experience sorrow. And, and that's a pretty evocative statement, isn't it? Being pierced, your soul's going to be pierced, your heart's going to be pierced. With, with, with your own soul with a sword. And you remember Mary was present with the other women when Jesus was crucified. She had to witness that. She had to see that and go through that agony. To this purpose, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's a reference to him not only being the, the Messiah and being the Savior, but he's also the judge. He's going to reveal what really is true about people where they believe. Okay, So we can say it that way. So, summarize. Simeon spoke to the Lord and to Mary. Anna spoke to believers in Israel. Simeon spoke of blessing to Jews and Gentiles. Simeon spoke of division and sorrow. And then we already saw in verse 38 that Anna spoke of redemption. That's down in verse 38. To all who would hear, those who were looking for redemption. Okay. Now, I started this by saying these, these, were, these were the waiting witnesses. He makes a statement in verse 29 that gives us an indication that they, he had probably been waiting a long time. They waited long for this. Because he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. There's no indication how old Simeon was, but I just assume based on that he must have some years on him. Okay, He, he, he has some miles on him. Because it's only when you reach a certain age of life when you sort of expect that most of my life is behind me rather than in front of me, we start talking about I'm ready to depart in peace. Maybe he's just a young man using that language, but I tend to lean that he's probably been waiting a long time. Anna, we know know more detail. It says in verse 37, this woman was a widow of about 84 years. So from the time her husband died, she's lived 84 more years, who did not depart from the temple. It also said, uh, uh, excuse me, back to verse 36, she was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. So she lived with her husband seven years. She's been a widow 84 years, and she had to have been to marrying age by the time she married. So she is somewhere 100 years plus or minus, probably a little plus if you do the best calculation you could do. So she has been waiting a long time. For this to take place, and she has this role. She came in at that instant. God intersected it all together. Now, as you turn the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3 and following, you never hear of Simeon again. You never hear of Anna again. If you turn back the pages prior to Luke chapter 2, you never hear of Simeon. You never hear of Anna. It seems, at least as far as the text of Scripture was, their lives were designed and planned and they had to wait pretty much all of their life and in Anna's age a long time for this one 
specific moment where they were called to be witnesses that Jesus fulfilled all that the law required. And indeed, this one that they were bringing in was the Lord's Christ and was the one who would bring salvation and redemption, not just to Israel, but to be a light to the Gentiles. Now, you think about it. Well, think about us. Sometimes we wonder, what what am I going to accomplish for the Lord? And most of us, God uses in more ways than we really think he does. But I want you to think about the significance of even a single act that we do for his glory. Let's ask you this question. What if, what if, would you be content, let's say it that way, for even one moment in your entire life to be used by God? Would that one moment be significant? That God Almighty, in His infinite wisdom, and His divine plan would say, you here for that. Now, I think for many, I think all of us, really, there's multiple ones of those. But even one moment, even one moment of significance to serve the Lord, that should be enough to thrill us and to encourage us and to motivate us and to bring us joy that even for a moment that God would use us. There's a verse that's recorded in Hebrews 6.10. I just want to bring it up for you and let it summarize our thoughts. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not unjust to forget what you do. I don't know what he may call us to do. And maybe that most significant thing that God is going to use us for is yet to be done. Maybe it's just one shining moment that will pass us by and we didn't even recognize how that little piece of the puzzle fits into the greater work of God and God makes something very significant, very beautiful out of it. So I want to, I want to challenge you. I want to call you. I want to call us all to live with some godly, enthusiastic expectation that your life is not just to survive. Your life is not just to endure. Your life is to be ready for God to use you even as for that one single moment in a lifetime. And I think for most of us, it's many moments in a lifetime. But even one is more than enough to give praise to our God.